Hello, I'm James Gifford, Head of Sustainable and Impact Advisory, and this is Lasting Values, the sustainability podcast by Credit Suisse. Our focus today in part two of this special series for Sustainability Week is whether biodiversity is being forgotten in the climate debate. Let's start with the basics. Biodiversity is everything that is living around us, and it's the interconnectedness between those species and organisms and how they operate as one, the ecosystem. So why is it so important to people, planet, and our economy? Ultimately, biodiversity in nature underpins all life on this planet, right? By providing ecosystem services around water, uh, clean air, uh, and also very, very importantly, supporting agriculture and the food that we need to survive. The World Economic Forum estimates that around about half of GDP is in some way dependent upon nature. So we're looking at about $44 trillion worth of of economic activity that's exposed to nature-related risks. That's Oliver Withers, Global Head of Biodiversity at Credit Suisse. He says that it is estimated we've lost around 80% of mammals and around 50% of plants due to human activities. We are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis. Right now, no matter which graph you look at, the trajectory is downwards. So there is immense efforts underway uh, to try and bend the curve of biodiversity loss. One of the tools we could use to support biodiversity in forests is carbon markets. On the path to net zero, carbon markets are a critical instrument in a broad toolkit to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There's a huge volume of capital available from corporations and government agencies for carbon offsetting with so-called carbon credits. So what are they? Carbon credits are measurable and very importantly, verifiable reductions in emissions, right? That emerge from climate projects that are certified to be doing what they're supposed to be doing, removing carbon from, from the atmosphere. So the whole idea here with the carbon credit is that it is reducing, removing, or avoiding greenhouse gas emissions. Obviously, the one that we're most focused on being carbon. I think a fundamental component of net zero is first and foremost that private sector has to reduce emissions. The only time that the private sector should be using carbon credits is when it is unable to reduce emissions any further. Now, there's a distinction between carbon removal, which removes from the atmosphere the carbon that has already been emitted, like, for example, uh, growing new forests. And then there's carbon avoidance, which seeks to prevent further carbon from being emitted uh, in the first place, for example, through paying to protect forests that might be uh, knocked down in the future. When it comes to carbon avoidance versus removal, Richard Tarberton, Global Head of Net Zero Strategy at Credit Suisse, says it's not a zero-sum game. A gain for one doesn't mean a loss for the other. Here he is talking at our Carbon Negative Conference. Everything we we, we can do to help reduce carbon emissions going into the atmosphere and to help carbon emissions come out of the atmosphere are important. So preserving rainforest, preserving areas 
that are, are going to provide the vital lungs of the earth is incredibly important. Um, that said, it doesn't actually remove an additional ton of carbon out the atmosphere by preserving an acre of forest. It just stops it being burnt down or stops additional carbon going into the atmosphere. So you, you do need to get to a point where we are actually measuring actual hard data being used. That's the kind of top quality measurement of every ton of carbon that's being taken out of the atmosphere being properly registered. And uh, I think that's the best quality you can get to. Now, we're all told that if we solve climate, we'll solve biodiversity. But is that the case? When it comes to carbon credits, there's a school of thought that says credits should at first be going to nature-based solutions uh, to protect biodiversity before investing in industrial carbon reductions or removals and other non-biodiversity carbon strategies. These nature-based solutions are a way of capturing carbon or avoiding future emissions by using natural ecosystems. And the most simple example is trees, either planting trees or protecting forests. Uh, and, and when trees are planted and grow, they sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and store it. Could we be smarter in how we are allocating the capital that we are today? I think a number of stakeholders would say, Yes, we should be trying to skew that allocation of capital towards nature-based solutions. I think when you look at uh, IPBES and IPCC, who are essentially the two scientific bodies that represent biodiversity and climate, they did a co-authored report in 2021 where they essentially acknowledged that biodiversity and climate change are two sides of the same coin and that they need to be addressed in tandem. We know that when we're addressing a number of ecosystem collapses, we're actually addressing a lot of climate change, right? So I think that we need to acknowledge that they are two different agendas that are interlinked, and both of those agendas need substantially more funding. So to give you some context, biodiversity, in 2020, a report from Cornell University, uh, the Paulson Institute, uh, and the Nature Conservancy estimated the annual funding gap for conservation to be around about $820 billion a year. The current funding for biodiversity is around about $140 billion a year. So we have a significant gap if we are actually going to address this biodiversity crisis and really start bending that curve of biodiversity loss. One of the most important ways of getting resources and capital into biodiversity conservation is through avoided deforestation carbon credits. Now these credits identify high conservation value forests and in effect pay local communities to protect those forests. The type of forests that are likely going to be chopped down if not for this additional capital. So this allows developing countries in the global south to value and protect their biodiversity in their forests without the need to cut them down and provide time and resources for them to develop uh, alternative livelihoods and their economies. But net zero initiatives actually prohibit avoided deforestation credits from counting for corporate carbon reductions. So this could be seen as a zero-sum game, money that could be going into supporting conservation areas and supporting local communities, helping species migrate, creating wildlife corridors, breeding programs, 
uh, supporting communities to protect those forests are being channeled into other areas such as industrial uh, carbon emission reductions. So the net zero requirements have created this nuance in the market around nature-based solutions. The reality is, is that in order to achieve net zero, we are really focused on removing emissions from the atmosphere. And we know that avoided emissions don't actually contribute to that objective. However, that's not to say that avoiding emissions is not critically important. What we're facing at the moment in the market is a dynamic wherein uh, there is more demand because of those net zero commitments and qualifying criteria for carbon credits. There is more demand for nature-based solutions that are focused on restoration, i.e. we are growing new forests that are sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. However, there is no point in us doing this if in parallel we are allowing forests to be cut down and in so doing that we are releasing carbon back into the atmosphere. Now, there is an emerging school of thought that whilst the avoided emissions, carbon credits, remain a voluntary market, we know that we're seeing a reduction in demand for those credits. And so there are some stakeholders who are now starting to position a solution for this, wherein actually we should be identifying the sectors which have the highest risk of deforestation and that we should be creating a specific voluntary market around avoided deforestation credits for those sectors. So the most obvious one there is agriculture. Agriculture is estimated to contribute around about 80% of all deforestation. And so this push is that agriculture should actually pick up a requirement to have a net zero deforestation target. So they should have a net zero emissions target and then a net zero deforestation target. The reality is, is these markets are very dynamic and still evolving. The real challenge here for this part of the market has been how do you demonstrate that the counterfactual is that that forest would have been cut down if there hadn't been an intervention. So what are some of the alternatives to nature-based solutions for carbon? Climeworks technology takes carbon dioxide directly from the air and stores it permanently and safely underground. Climeworks say whilst planting and protecting trees is absolutely essential in fighting climate change, trees are not enough. They cite leading scientists from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, who say that in order to achieve our global 1.5 degree temperature goal, we need technology solutions to actually remove CO2 from the atmosphere. We caught up with Andreas Apley, CFO of Climeworks, at a Credit Suisse event in Tel Aviv to find out why direct air capture is indeed part of the solution and how its price may come down over time. We need to find the right way to um, reduce the amount of carbon we put out. And I think that's always going to be cheaper to reduce 
the amount of output before you take uh, before you take carbon out of the atmosphere. But we already know today that won't be enough. And so if you talk about removal solutions, you're right. There's nature-based solutions, which are currently still relatively cheap. But we have to understand there's some limitations. One, um, they're not as permanent as what we do. What we do is really you take the carbon out for 10,000s of years. Um, and secondly, it's really scalable. And that's what we, what we need. Um, we can't solve the problem just with nature-based solutions alone. We simply don't have enough space on the planet. And that, and that means already today we need to uh, invest in and scale technological removals because they are the only ones who have a realistic chance to achieve these kind of capacities that we'll need. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest in nature-based solutions. I think that's really great still today to do for companies, but we have to understand that over time um, um, the nature-based solutions market will not, cannot grow as fast as the te technology-based solution. We talk about uh, Orca delivering about 4,000 tons a year uh, of, of nameplate capacity um, and that's really a very very small scale and then it also makes sense that it's still quite expensive. When we then go into the megaton scale um, we think we can drive down that cost significantly and at the gigaton scale so by the 2050s that cost should come down to around 100 to 200 dollars a ton. We have a very clear roadmap of how we're going to get there but it will take time and it, it will require investing already today because otherwise we'll never reach that scale. What's really encouraging is that um, we are, are not the first technology to do this to do this. We have seen with renewable energy that they were able to achieve even higher factors uh, of, of, of uh, driving the cost down uh, than we have in mind um, over a similar time frame. So we're really encouraged that that's actually possible and will happen. Oliver agrees that nature-based solutions alone cannot solve our climate problems. We simply do not have enough land for nature-based solutions to provide all of our climate solutions, right? So we will need new technologies around direct carbon capture. The reality is though, is that what net zero is driving at is that we should be reducing our emissions because as long as economic activity continues to grow, those emissions will outstrip our ability to remove carbon from the atmosphere. So first and foremost, we have to reduce emissions as much as possible before relying on carbon credits. Whilst there might be additional benefits to, to biodiversity and, and nature by just having people offset, the reality is, is that we're then going to live in a world where there is no incentive for any stakeholders to reduce their emissions. And eventually, we will simply surpass our planetary boundaries around what we can naturally sequester. Climeworks CFO says that if we want to find a solution to achieve these carbon removals at this scale, we need space efficient solutions. If we only want to do this with nature-based solutions, we take away space from agriculture and we take away space potentially also from biodiversity. So I think um, biodiversity is often a little bit an underappreciated goal because we build machines and plants, but because our solutions are so space efficient, you can scale our solutions and still leave a lot of land and a lot of space to increase biodiversity. So do nature-based solutions use up huge amounts of space and actually potentially take away from the agricultural land? Uh, and are they detrimental for food production, for example? Oliver says things are changing in this area and nature-based solutions can coexist with agriculture. The topic of, of the trade-off between agriculture and nature-based solutions 
the dynamic on that discussion is changing very rapidly. And one of the main drivers for this is soil. So soil in and of itself is a hub for biodiversity. And soil in and of itself is actually a nature-based solution. We are now beginning to see results from studies that are, are able to tell us that soil is able to sequester very, very efficiently carbon from the atmosphere. And so suddenly, when we're talking about soil carbon, we're in the realm that nature-based solutions and agriculture can actually coexist. And the more carbon that the soil sequesters, the more productive that soil is. Yields increase for farmers. There's less requirements for fertilizers, etc. cetera. Uh, so I, I actually think that the idea that there is a trade-off is starting to dissipate completely. And people are beginning to acknowledge that these things can be done in parallel. Carbon Direct is a company that offers science-backed solutions for carbon management and says that all strategies are needed. CEO and founder Jonathan Goldberg says that in the corporate space, nature-based solutions actually make up the great majority of the marketplace. Here he is talking at our Carbon Negative conference. I think across VCM, there's a focus on, on carbon removal as opposed to carbon avoidance and other types of credits. So nature-based solutions that can provide that, I would say, are in higher demand uh, than those that, that can't. Um, we see a lot of reforestation projects that are, are, are coming. Um, there are some innovations around the edges of improved forest management that potentially can lead to carbon removal that have some potential that we're seeing. Um, soil carbon, I would say, has quite a bit of work to do around MRV issues, but is an area of great potential that clients are looking at, both on creating credits and also on purchasing credits that come. Um, and the market still is 95% plus nature-based solutions. Right. Um, uh, there's simply not enough supply of engineered solutions right. to really change that. And I would emphasize that while some customers are paying high prices for engineered tons, um, most folks are, are very price sensitive. Um, and the ability for nature-based solutions to deliver at um, what's deemed to be a more reasonable price point. And of course, you have to adjust for the duration of the storage. Um, it, it continues to drive action in that market. Nature-based solutions certainly have been an important part of the voluntary carbon markets, or VCM, and has provided significant funding for biodiversity conservation. Yes, there are challenges with it, but on the whole, carbon credits through nature-based solutions have generated a conservation cash flow that was never there before. So this is a hugely, hugely powerful tool for conservation. However, that should not be the end of the contribution to biodiversity. We must go further than that. And I think that's where we start talking about avoided deforestation credits and biodiversity credits. So there is a lot of excitement about the idea of a biodiversity credit. Um, however, I think it's important just for context that we take a step back and we think about how would we actually measure that. The benefit we have with uh, climate change is that it is actually relatively easy for us to measure emissions and the resulting increase in temperature. If we haven't even identified all of the species on this planet, how on earth will we begin to measure biodiversity holistically? 
Then there are some very interesting approaches that are emerging in terms of should biodiversity credits be their own standalone market? Should biodiversity credits actually be pegged to a carbon credit? There is also a school of thought that we should do away with the idea of carbon credits from nature-based solutions, and we should have a nature credit that would be made up of carbon, biodiversity, and social. But I'll be honest, we are a long, long way away from being able to come to market with something that is as scalable as we've seen with carbon credits. And even when we look at the carbon credit market, lots of complexities and challenges still exist. So what we're seeing now is the start of a shift in the market towards pricing in the quality of the carbon credit, historically something ignored in carbon markets. And that is another win for biodiversity. So historically, the carbon market has made no distinction uh, when we look at nature-based solutions between generating those carbon credits from monoculture or from very biodiverse forests we see very little change in the pricing. That has really shifted over the last two years. We are getting away from a race to the bottom for the cheapest carbon credit. And what we are looking for now is quality carbon credits. The potential for us to package up the biodiversity impact and the social impact that's created is essentially additional impact value that the market is leaving on the table. A new biodiversity credit could create parallel funding explicitly for, say, avoided deforestation. And Oliver says there are now other new exciting projects on the horizon, not least in the oceans. So there's a lot of excitement around uh, blue carbon, um, and blue carbon in particular, arguably the, the plant that's at the top of the list is mangroves. Mangroves, seagrasses, uh, the likes thereof, are are very, very exciting prospects. Um, Similar to the idea of soil uh, and soil carbon. Um, However, when we look at what a carbon credit is, it's measurable and it's verifiable. There is still quite a bit of work for us to do around how can we measure and verify mangroves, seagrasses, soil, Etc. Another really interesting one is when you actually look at species. So, for example, whales have an enormous amount of carbon that they sequester out of the ecosystem and the atmosphere. However, it's pretty challenging for us to be able to measure and verify that because it requires us to understand how many whales are in the world, where are they, how are we tracking them. So, again, we are very dependent upon science to be able to unlock a number of these new opportunities. In summary, while there is still considerable uncertainty about which carbon strategies will be most important in the future, most would agree that all solutions need to play a role. We need industrial carbon removal if we are to meet our net zero targets, and we also need to channel considerable capital into avoided deforestation in order to protect biodiversity and support economic development for local communities. Another thing we can agree on is that the carbon markets are growing incredibly fast. The Credit Suisse report, The Beginning of the Big Carbon Age, states that the carbon credit market could rival the global oil market in size. 
So hit that follow button on Apple or Spotify and check in with us every month on Lasting Values, the sustainability podcast by Credit Suisse. Should a bank clean up the ocean? We engage with companies creating ocean impact and preventing plastic pollution practices. We're on it. The information provided herein constitutes general marketing material. It is not investment advice, nor otherwise based on a consideration of the personal circumstances of the addressee, nor is it a result of objective or independent research. The information provided herein is not legally binding and it does not constitute an offer or invitation to enter into any type of financial transaction. The information provided herein was produced by a member of Credit Suisse Group AG and or its affiliates, hereafter CS, with the greatest of care and to the best of its knowledge and belief. The information and views expressed herein are those of CS at the time of writing and are subject to change at any time without notice. They are derived from sources believed to be truthful and reliable. CS provides no guarantee with regard to the completeness and accuracy of the information and, where legally possible, does not accept liability for any direct, indirect, incidental, specific or consequential losses that might arise from making use of the information. If nothing is indicated to the contrary, all figures are unaudited. The information provided herein is solely for information purposes and the exclusive use of the recipient and is not intended and should not be construed as legal, accounting, tax nor financial advice provided by CS. If this material is issued and distributed in the US, it is by CSSU, a member of NYSE, FINRA, SIPC and the NFA and CSSU accepts responsibility for its contents. Clients should contact their sales representative and execute transactions through a Credit Suisse subsidiary or affiliate in their home jurisdiction, unless governing law permits otherwise. This material is intended for institutional investors only, not for retail distribution. It may not be reproduced, neither in part nor in full, without the prior written permission of CS. Important information for investors in Germany. The information and views expressed herein are those of CS at the time of writing and are subject to change at any time without notice. They are derived from sources believed to be reliable. CS provides no guarantee with regard to the content and completeness of the information. If nothing is indicated to the contrary, all figures are unaudited. The information provided herein is for the exclusive use of the recipient. Copyright 2021 Credit Suisse Group AG and or its affiliates. All rights reserved.